You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. In this episode, our guest is Tom Davidson, founder and CEO of the education technology platform, EverFi. Tom describes EverFi's unique approach to online curriculum for K-12, university, and business settings. We discuss how the company delivers life skill training where it's most needed, as well as the way they leverage unique partnerships with professional sports leagues. Through EverFi, Tom creatively engages corporate leaders in the mission of social change through education. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Scott, we have a real treat with us today. We've got my great friend, Tom Davidson, who also is one of the leading, leading education entrepreneurs in the world. He runs a company called EverFi, which he co-founded with his partners. Tom, I want to ask you, we want to talk about, you know, online education, the future of education, public-private partnerships, and all the cool stuff that you're involved in. But first, I want you to tell us, in a nutshell, what is EverFi, what's it all about, and and what are you guys up to these days? Well, thanks so much. It's just a total pleasure to be here. Yeah, so EverFi started about 12 years ago, and it really came out, I have a weird background. I'm not sure it's the perfect background for a tech CEO, but I had been a a member of the House of Representatives in Maine. I ran right out of college and learned a ton about really two areas. One was how to connect schools and kids, particularly kids in high poverty areas to the internet. We were one of the first states that wired all the schools and libraries together. We created the first one-to-one laptop initiative in the state. At the same time, it was pretty clear that the way schools were funded was just totally out of whack. And it, it wound up creating a great divide in terms of access to the latest and greatest things that if you come from a community of means and are born into the right zip code, you're doing pretty well. And if you're if you're not, uh, you tend to be a little SOL. And so whatever FI was set up to do was we build out what I think are these really fascinating learning programs. Think of like a five-hour, 10-hour, in some case, 15-hour courses that teach kids about really critical life skills that are often left outside of the school day. So these are things like financial education, student loan readiness, how to fill out a FAFSA form for student aid, managing food insecurity, learning about sexual violence prevention or bullying prevention or how to treat each other compassionately. So these are things you don't often see us, probably won't ever build like a chemistry course as much as I could have used that in my life. We think a lot of people are very good at building out the common core, you know, core curriculum areas, but it's these, what I call these like exoskeletal things that are often left out of the school day, but we wind up learning a lot from mistake, you know, um, mistake after mistake after mistake of banging up your credit, not understanding what a mortgage is, not understanding payroll taxes or how to file your taxes. And we just think those are things that can be taught. How do you make these things simple? Because, uh, you know, I, I have had to have these occasional conversations. A young friend of the family asked me about investing, asked me about stocks. And I said, my first question to him was, do you have any credit cards you're carrying a balance on? And he said, well, yes. And I said, you have a 20% guaranteed return if you pay off those credit cards. He'd never thought about it because it's complicated. So how do you simplify this? 
Yeah, so it's it's a great question because it's important that you do, and it's important, you know, what, what for the, the really the opportunity with EverFi was that most of the times it, it's folks like us who walk in and stand in front of the classroom and mm-hmm. speak for an hour and a half to kids about compounding interest or savings, and and you watch their heads slowly hit the you know the desk as they pass out from boredom, and so you definitely need to remember that these areas, which are often like, they should be dinner table conversations, but one, they're not easy to talk about. Two, they tend not to be easy intergenerational conversations between you know families or advisors or big brothers or big sisters or anything. And the third thing is you got to meet kids where they, you know, where they live. You can't, you can't have kids on TikTok and using Snapchat and other, you know, uh, whatever the latest, you know, app du jour is, and then go in and give them a PowerPoint on a slide projector. And so we knew that we needed to use things like social gaming, nudges, messaging tools. We needed to allow teachers to really easily integrate that into the K-12 school day in the case of our K-12 business. And I think one of the great things that, that I think we did early on, whether we meant to or not, is we wound up having, I think we have something like 170 teachers that work for us full time. They develop product. They develop the content, they train the teachers, do the professional development. And that allowed you, you know, so many times geniuses like me sit in fancy offices in San Francisco or Tribeca or wherever it might be. And we're like, let me tell you what's going to work in the Mississippi Delta or, you know, Bastrop, Louisiana. And it, it winds up hitting a brick wall in, in those communities. And so you've got to, number one, kind of lean into the technology that is the technology of the day and not get too wed to any one delivery mechanism. What's a funny story, I'll tell you guys, like a year ago, we were sitting around having these conversations. We run all this, the uh, back-end education programs for significant programs for the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, the Premier League, and others. We started to Zoom in using, using Zoom, athletes and others to just drop into classrooms. It was the most revolutionary thing. And we sat around in these conference rooms saying, I wonder if we could ever get kids to be on, you know, be on a Zoom. And here we are, you know, nine months later where that's all we do. So you've got to recognize that the market and circumstance will often drive the delivery tools that students will respond to. And you've got to be flexible with that as well. How do you leverage the NFL? How do you leverage the Premier League? How does that factor into your business model? So, Andrew, it really is the special, I think, kind of the special sauce of EverFi is I do think we could spend 92 hours with me telling you what we don't do well, and uh, we don't have time for that. Well, we could spend 92 hours with me, you, and Scott talking about the NFL in general, so we won't, we won't get into that. Exactly. But yeah, That's a different podcast. <laughs> It was a core, it was the underlying like cornerstone of our of our business was number one, we did not want to have to, to go from a standing start to kind of build EverFi as a household name and try and convince people that we were, you know, the be all end all or had all the credibility in the world to to do these things because we didn't we didn't have any of it. What we felt was really important was to become the intel inside of 
hundreds and and now thousands, you know, 3,100, you know, large companies across the world to put them in the business of financial literacy, to put them in the business of teaching compassion or sexual violence prevention, whatever the, these kind of big, hairy, intractable problems might be. So for us, what we wanted to do was instead of having EverFi be at the front, team with the private sector for two reasons. One was they had, in many cases, a hundred year old, you know, connection and brand, and they were recognized and, and in most cases trusted across the board. Number two was that we knew that there was never, we're business, so we're not a nonprofit. We're trying to and depending on what month you catch us, we're not a nonprofit, but, um, but we're, <laughs> our, our, our goal is to build a very large, sustaining and enduring business. And so what we wanted to do was create this as a real enterprise software company and sell this as, as a service to the largest companies in the world who could then deploy it into the communities that they had employees and that they cared about, that they had mm -hmm. connections with. So what we do is like with um, the NFL, we built a really powerful um, character and um, education program. With the NHL, we built a program that utilizes hockey to teach really specific data science and upskilling skills for the jobs of, of the future. We teamed with Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, to build out a program on compassion, you know, and bullying, and on and on and on. And so, um, and and for us, what it does is this. This is a really important part of this. The education sector has two things, in my opinion, that are challenging for families. One is it is highly, highly localized. So in Mississippi, you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of school districts all making their own curriculum decisions, their own funding decisions. That doesn't allow you to ever do anything. Like people talk about the Department of Education all the time. It doesn't allow you to like, do a national really anything. And then number two, whatever does come along nationally or from a governor, those things are so fleeting. I mean, that was one of the things I learned as a state legislator was the whipsaw and kind of yo-yo of budgets. One minute, it's no child left behind. The next minute, it's race to the top. The next minute, it's common core. The next minute, it's whatever the president decides that he or she is going to, you know, going to make a priority. And so what we wanted EverFi to do was to power the private sector to get in the business of solving these problems, paying 100% of the cost of it. So it's free to schools and they could spend their money on something else. And three, that it was enduring, that that these were multi-year commitments and people weren't getting yo-yoed. And so often the superintendents come to us and say, hey, what is this going to be gone in a year? You know, we've got a lot of people who do drive-bys on this stuff and they're here for a year and then they're off to something else. So those were the key private sector parts of this. So you just launched a Basically a day ago, you know, we're talking today on Thursday, Athletes First and EverFi unite to launch nationwide interactive African-American history education program. What does that do? So I love, I just got chills when you brought it up because I, I get chills every time I think about this. So my fo entire focus in, in college was African-American history. It was my major. And I thought it was really, really hurtful to the country that we did not have a good and consistent course that celebrated the diaspora, the heroic contributions of the African-American community over the last 400 years. So Really before, it's interesting, Andrew, we launched this course seven years ago. 
And it's called 306, which is interesting. There's a collective that had started an address at 306 in, in Harlem, where the great artists and sculptors and others came together during the Renaissance. And then 306 was the room where Martin Luther King always stayed at the Lorraine Motel, his room he was killed in front of. And, and so yeah. that name just really hit me of the pain and the promise of the movement. And so 306 is our course. Um, we built it with Clay Carson, who's the official biographer of the King family for many years and, and runs a department at Stanford. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful African-American history course that we have now teamed with UBS and the NFL and Athletes First and others to bring to communities across the country. I think it's really important. Yeah, most schools don't have this. And we think the kids who go through it, the data shows are substantially more empathetic and compassionate to each other's journeys, regardless of where they come from and who they are. And so, yeah, it was a big announcement yesterday. Athletes First represents hundreds of, of athletes, including some of the great Oklahoma Sooners where I come from. And so it was yeah. meaningful to me. That's amazing. And can corporations, can corporations and organizations get access to this too? Yes. Yeah. So we made a big push during COVID um, in particular to kind of open up that platform. So our message is always, if a school reaches out to us, they get it for free and we'll figure out a way to get it, you know, paid for by somebody else on the back end. We've never charged a school and we never will. And we think companies should offer this as an employee benefit to their, their employees and their kids, which is what UBS and others are doing, which is pretty cool. Tom, could you talk about the platforms that you, you, you mentioned this, this school, we talked K through 12, and you're offering a scale and you're offering continuity, which are, which are great benefits and, and have, have a long-term payout. But Everfi also has a corporate side. You do businesses, you do nonprofits. What's the overlap and what are the differences? Yeah, so there's three core businesses. We talked about the K-12 piece. The college piece is an interesting one. I'll just touch on that really quickly. We have about 1,500 universities that use that software, train students principally in four different areas, um, sexual violence prevention before they arrive on campus, alcohol responsibility, their mental health, and diversity and inclusion. So that gets bought by a university, gets implemented, and I love that, you know, that business. The enterprise business, a company business. It's a newer business for us, but it is scaled dramatically. And that is really focusing on internal like culture, internal. We just think this all comes together. We call it our community engagement operating system. It's kind of a mouthful, but this is kind of what are you doing externally and what are you doing internally? And you got to do both. The corporate side is focused on diversity, inclusion, unconscious bias. It's focused on harassment. It's focused on creating a safe work environment for folks. And our goal at EverFi is going to pull that all together so a company can look in one place and see what they're doing in the communities they operate in as well as within their four walls. That's remarkable. You know, one of the things that, that I noticed on your blog, uh, the EverFi blog, was a forecast for 2021. And kind of that ties into your programming. There are some items here I'd like you to comment on because you're saying that compliance complexities continue to go up, expectations for better practices and better results continue to escalate. Focus on employee well-being is a core mission in a lot of HR departments, yet remote work is going to stay at high levels. How do you balance the distresses of remote work and really the distance from corporate cultures, the distance from, from management and take advantage of the trends? Yeah, it, it's a it's a great question. I mean, it is the question anybody who is running a company right now is very worried about. And I think I, I'm on a group of about 50 CEOs that get together on a call and we may have 30 of us, you know, at any given time. We do it once every 10, 10 days or two weeks. 
And I think we're all, you know, we're worried about the fact that those of us who, who have had in-office cultures, for the most part, Everfy's almost been half remote employees all along. So we did have a bit of a head start on this. But I think you worry a lot about the fragility of the culture, you know, that you've built over time, how important that in-person water cooler interaction is. And obviously, we're all thinking about how we come out the other end of this. I will tell you, I feel our company is significantly stronger coming out the other end of, of, of COVID. And when it when it happens, I think largely because it has been so unique uniquely, individually tough on almost each member for a variety of reasons. A couple of years ago, you started to see the employees focus on their internal culture and what is ha- you know what is happening there in a way that had never happened mm-hmm. before. I think HR, even HR leads would tell you HR was like payroll and compliance. And, and it's now become a very different animal. It certainly is payroll and compliance, but it's also, can people bring themselves to work every day? What kind of environment I'm showing up into? That's never going back. Like it's never going back. The expectations, and we're seeing that in our work, the expectations of what employees, particularly younger employees who are entering, you know, the workplace are are driving that. And they have a very different expectation of what the company is expected to do, who the company is expected to be, this whole concept of like stakeholder capitalism and these things like they're real things, you know, they're very real things. And we just see a big opportunity there for our software and like our content stuff to be a part of that, you know, part of that conversation. Are you thinking about things like physical space differently? Yeah, I mean, we certainly are. I think it's funny. One of the things about doing this at almost age, you know, 50 maybe is you've seen a few movies of various waves of technology companies and stuff. And um, so I, I warn our company against getting too bought into any one thematic, right? It's like San Francisco's dead. San Francisco's alive. New York is dead. Commercial space is dead. We're never going back to the office. Like, it's very easy, particularly at the beginning of COVID. Everyone had their like absolute line in the sand. We're never going back to the office ever again. But what I will tell you is this. I don't think anybody feels like their physical usage and physical space is going to look and operate the way it did before this. I just think like anything else, you're going to see more people opting to use the space as far more, and and this is the way we're thinking about it, like far more of a convening space than a plop in a seat and put yourself in front of a screen for, you know, nine hours or whatever it might be. So we're thinking about that configuration. I, I look at it beyond just the safety. We're not, we're not back in the office yet. So like beyond the configuration world, it's just like, how will we use this in the future? How will we ever find a really big travel company? Like we believe in, you know, being on the ground and, you know, on a native American reservation or in the heart of the places we operate. I think we're rethinking whether, it's necessary to do all of that all the time. So those those are the considerations right now. What's the the thing that you think of when you think of the other side of education? And you know, you've obviously been a pioneer in this space. You know, online education has online education and education changed forever because of COVID. 
Great question. I think it absolutely has. I think we've got some debt that we've got to take care of. I don't know, you know, I had this conversation with my dad last night. I, I think, you know, the fact that access to healthcare and certain things, so much of these things, a safety for kids happen inside school houses and school buildings across the country is something that people need to recognize that they're far more than just content delivery, you know, buildings, they're, they're life buildings. I tell this, people often just find it like crazy, but it shouldn't be how much time teachers spend trying to deliver food to kids at home. I mean, it would blow your mind. And so there's that side of it. The other piece of it is like, we have to make a decision as a society, whether we think access and connectivity is, is basically like a human right for, for students. I believe it is because it's within our, it's like one of the few actionable things you can do is wire schools and libraries the right way and provide access. It's, this should be something the FCC in the next administration should demand and, and government should demand and localities and municipalities should demand. So that's number one. And then that gives you kind of the building blocks to say, then what's the second? And I've said this since the very beginning, like there can't be another wave of digital divide. I mean, you can't have um, 20% of the country have access to all of the EverFi type things of financial education and test prep and student readiness and mental health, you know, programs that can now be scaled online and have all of the rest of the kids standing by watching it happen, which is why I think our business model is so important to get the private sector to pay for all of that. And I think the private sector should, I really do. Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, think about it in our media right now. We've got a situation where you have information haves and have nots. You know, you can afford a subscription to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, or you can't. And if you can't, you're really missing out on some really important information. And you might not be able to make that up somewhere else. And it's the same with education. If you can afford access to great education, or if you're in a place where there's great free education and you can access it, well, great. But if you're not, you are SLL, right? Yeah. And and that's, I think that that's the, I think what will change coming out of this is there are going to be really empowering tools that we might have missed this wave, but people are going to learn a lot in this wave. And it kind of, you don't want to be learning on the job. I always say, let's not learn on the job, you know, with our, with our kids, but, but we will learn a lot from this experience. I think the second thing is these, the kids, there will be a postmortem on this that will show that we lost, you know, that kids just, we had this expectation that families could be able to figure this out and kids could be able to figure a lot of this out on their own. It's a completely unfair expectation that you would just somehow make a student an online learning expert to manage the multitude of applications and messaging tools and things that are coming their way. It's a totally unfair expectation. And we're going to learn that that was really, really unfair, you know, that happened to a lot of kids. Well, much less even for most kids to have a quiet place in their house to look online and, and, and learn online uh, with a computer, if they even have a computer and they even have broadband. I'm a huge glass half full person. And I think that it should be exciting to us, the possibility of what, what can happen. The accelerant that was COVID of just specifically as it relates to the possibility of connecting kids to the best teachers, the best information of enabling like flipped classrooms and homework to be done, like the promise of it 
should be a really exciting thing for everybody. And I think now what's cool about this from a market perspective is it has, people have realized it and there's billions of dollars going into the development of tools, I think, to, to make this a better experience for kids. It's always great to talk to a glass half full person because they're, you're, in a, you're in a distinct minority. <laughs> so, so while we have you, look out five years from now. Okay, what are you optimistic about? What are you really hopeful about in your space? So I think a couple of different things. And I have a ton of optimism about it because a lot of times people don't focus on this world, feel like this is all displacement for teachers and stuff, which is bananas. Because at the end of the day, I think what ed tech writ large will prove is that they just become, you know, we just become a, a toolkit that teachers can enable in a really, really powerful way. I think professional development is going to get a lot better and teachers are going to be enabled to do just significantly more to do reinforcement work, like reinforcement work at home to individualize learning. And that's, I think, the biggest, if I had to zoom in on one thing, it would be this, is that the promise of ed tech to me is, is the enablement of more individualized reinforcement. Sure, there's going to be discovery. Sure, there's going to be like, you'll be able to access the best minds and the best teachers in the world at scale. That can be done today, but that's like an enabling function that that we have to. But ultimately, what will happen is that my son, you know, that Garrison will have a, a different approach than, than Daniel will, and they'll need to be reinforced in different areas. And that technology will enable the discovery of that and then the enablement of teachers to do that reinforcement so that teacher doesn't have to constantly be doing that across 40 kids. Math reinforcement, word study reinforcement, the enablement of learning of things like that can be somewhat standardized. That's what I say about financial literacy is like, why do, why should we expect in that case, it's so important, why should we expect hundreds of thousands of teachers to become experts in, you know, how derivatives work and commodities play out and how stock exchanges are, are set up. And, you know, why do we, why can't we just create somewhat scalable solutions to that stuff? Well, I'm pretty sure that we're all going to be working for Garrison and Daniel one day, who I believe are conspiring to hit you up for Wizards tickets now that Westbrook has joined wow. the squad. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> It's an amazing trade. I'm I'm fired up. (laughs) There's some good news. Well, Tom, this has been an incredible discussion. We've really learned a lot. I I have a final question for you. You have been able to attract some of the real, you know, heavy hitters in the world. People like, you know, Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt and Richard Branson to, you know, back you. Why do you think they've all been so keen on your model? Well, I think that, yeah, we're, you know, we're lucky to have those folks. And and this is, I think the answer to that is there is a, this is one of those areas where there's a deep, like violent agreement that it has fallen, you know, it has not had the innovation that healthcare system, transportation systems, energy systems have experienced. And I think The big thing that I heard directly from a lot of those folks along the way was that the education system, I really believe this, has suffered from a lack of engagement and involvement from the private sector. All the responsibility and the pressure has landed on teachers, it's landed on public funding and state legislatures and others. And you can't point to many other places in these like large GDP, you know, massive employers and others 
where the lack of a private sector and the innovation that comes from them has been a net plus. You know, like um, you just can't point to any other place where that there's been an absence for the most part of the private sector. And I just believe that EverFi can be a, a conduit for allowing billions and billions and billions of dollars to flow through in a predictable way, in a consistent way to augment what schools are up against. Because the bottom line is like school funding formulas have been set up over hundreds of years and they were set up and have whether they were intended to or not, have uniquely disadvantaged kids in high poverty areas. It's a tragedy and I always tell people it's probably not going to get solved by the public sector because unless you've sat like I, I got all my white hair because I, I sat through school funding formula debates on the floor of the state legislature and you were kind of like this ain't ever getting fixed. And so you need to enable a different funding mechanism. And weirdly, I'll tell you this, Andrew, it's more consistent. People are always like, well, don't you worry about the yo-yoing or the whipsaw of like um, corporations pulling out or whatever? I'm like, no, I worry about state legislators changing their minds every two years and biennial yeah. budget cycles. So that's that's what I'm, I'm excited about. The model. And that's why I think a lot of these folks who also believe in the power of, of innovation and the private sector being a partner in that. I think that's why they got in. Good to know they're backing you. It's good to know they care and good, really good to know that you and Everfire out there powering this next generation of leaders and the future of our education. Tom Davidson, thank you so much for being with Scott and I for the reopening. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.